Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Hi, and welcome to Concord Matters. This is Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of St. Paul Winehill and Emmanuel West Point in Southern Illinois. And today I have with me uh, our usual guests, uh, Pastor Peter Ill of Trinity Milstadt and Pastor, or not Pastor, sorry, <laughs> Priesthood of All Believers. But Ooh, uh, yeah, um, we're not going that far. Yeah, Mr. Peter Slayton, social media manager of LCMS Communications. Uh, great to have uh, the three of us together again. It yeah. is fantastic to get to be together. It's great to be here as always. Always a blessing. And uh, we are uh, still working our way through the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 4, Article 5, depends on how you break it up, what translation of the Book of Concord that you're using. Mine also says Article 3 in parentheses. I'm so confused. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's so much going on here. But uh, indeed, this is the... Uh, article upon which the church stands and falls. We've talked a good bit about this uh, over the last several months as we've covered this and other guys that cover this show have covered it. And uh, we continue to talk about this article of justification and specifically how it plays into our good works, love and fulfilling the law. We're going to see here today uh, how that kind of subtitle of article five, if you use that breakup, comes to be about and where we're picking up today is in line 173 or 294, again, depending on what uh, translation you're using there, of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. And before we get in there, this is, if you're if you're looking in your Book of Concord, it's, it's like a huge run-on sentence, but a huge run-on paragraph uh, that just goes on and the on and on. paragraphs are getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just keeps going. And so uh, we're, we're using line markers, paragraph markers, uh, as it would be broken up there. But uh, this is flowing forth from a section uh, where uh, they've laid out the teaching of the opponents there. Uh, and the opponents are using two modes of justification when they speak about justification. And one mode is based on upon reason, and the other mode is based upon law. And they've argued that neither mode is based on the gospel, the promise of Christ. And so the first mode then is condign uh, merit and, um, or, uh, you know, an agree, or I'm sorry, not condign, congruo. De congruo. <laughs> it is an agreeable way. Uh, that's the Latin de congruo. And then uh, the other mode is de condigno, uh, a deserving way. And so these are the two modes that they're working with there. Uh, brothers, any comments on kind of the foundation that they're laying of the opponent's arguments? Well, I, my, my first thought when we cover a lot of this stuff is where do we see this today? And I think we've covered this um, a little bit here, but just the whole there's love and there's reason. And my first thought was, well, neither of those is faith. We're, we're still missing the faith. So that's still the consistent argument that we've seen throughout the discussion of this particular article. The adversaries are con consistently, we're having problems talking today in pronunciation it happens. thingies, um, 
the, the adversaries are consistently either leaving out faith entirely or making it part of it in some way that the other part is all is is required. And so I hear, you know, the, these two ways you have either love or you have reason. Um, the reason one really kind of piqued me just now trying to think, where do we see that today? The love is pretty easy. Well, I'm a good person. I do good things. I help my neighbor. You know, we can, we see that very commonly. Therefore, I've got to be okay. You know, hopefully it's enough to for God to let me in. I'm I'm interested in maybe talking a little bit about where do we see the reason side of this coming in today? And I'm I'm I ask that because I'm not thinking of anything offhand. I'm sure I will in a little bit. But what do you guys think? <laughs> I think that the big word for that is autonomy, where people have this idea of I'm a grown up and I can go do the things that I need to do and I can provide for the things that I need to do. And for us, that tends to be a pretty heady kind of an intellectual thing. Hmm. So it's not so much the affective element of of loving enough, of wanting enough, of of doing enough out of your love, but rather of being able to be enough cognitively, intellectually, and to provide for others. But at the end of the day, both this congruent and uh, condign merit that are spoken about aren't enough. Because like you said, Peter, they're not faith. And apart from faith, we have nothing. Our love isn't enough. Our reason isn't enough. There is no merit that we can bring to the party that will set us free. There is nothing that will remove our sin except the grace of Christ that we receive by faith. And that is really the foundation that we're getting to here as we pick up in line 173. Is a certain element of the reason side of this wanting a faith, for the lack of a better word, even though that's not what we're actually, not what the adversaries are saying, but wanting a faith that I can understand, that I can figure out, that makes sense. I mean, is that as as I'm reading through, you know, this the passage a little bit before here, it, it kind of makes reference to this this way of life or this thing that I can understand, I can grasp, um, and I can see the temptation towards that, uh, particularly because hey, if I can figure it out, if I can understand it, awesome. Now I know the steps I have to take. I know the things I have to do. Here's my list. Um, maybe they're not necessarily good deeds, love towards my neighbor, which might differentiate that from the the love path that they're talking about. But um, hey, I've got I've got my twelve steps towards salvation, and as long as I just kind of keep plugging along and following them, and they're all understandable, they're all very reasonable, and I can apprehend them with my intellect. Great, let's do this thing. My sinful flesh loves to try to figure things out, and as we try to figure things out, I end up in all kinds of trouble. Um, and I think that's where we get the the theological question or issue of, of theodicy, or of trying mm. to justify God. Um, and I think that every error of theodicy, trying to justify God, comes back to trying to be in control. Uh, We Mm. don't want to have faith. We want a God we can understand, and we want a God that we can predict, a God that we can put into the box. And so we theodicize God and try to tell him who he is instead of simply accepting who he is and realizing we're not going to understand that, and that's okay. Yeah, and I think there's something else underlying here, too. And as we talk about reason and love. I I think for them, the argument for our adversaries is more kind of where does this power come from? And they're trying to figure this out. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, how, how, 
uh, good works play into it. And I think the reason is more in the sense of they're using human reason to figure out where that power comes from. And so they say, you know, God has made us all with some sort of ability. This isn't using a human reason argument, some sort of ability within ourselves to improve our situation. We just have to tap into that. We have to get it going. And we see this still playing out in the world today. I mean, as we sit here in studios here in St. Louis and uh, we've seen what's been in the news, um, you know, uh, the past couple weeks here of protests and things like that. And there's a lot of move uh, towards dealing with issues like racism and other things like that. Of We just got to tap into that human potential to be able to do it. And and so they're using human reason to kind of understand how do we get this potential. And then the love aspect, I think they're using, you know, that this power comes from God. It's infused into us with our ability to do good works because what Christ did on the cross for us gives us the ability to love. And I think that this lays the foundation then for how they say, well, actually, you're denying Christ and where good works really come from, where the power really comes from in all of this, because faith is not ascribing to what Christ did on the cross. Hmm. Faith is not clinging to that. And we're going to play that out a little bit more here in a second. Um, But uh, I think it's more trying to figure out where's the power for the good works coming from. And their argument for the adversaries, for our opponents, is you're, you're looking for the power in all the wrong places. <laughs> to kind of play off a country song there, right? And, no country. Uh, we don't do country oh, here. Oh, come on. Yes, we do. <laughs> uh, but uh, And so as as we, we have to uh, wrestle with this, um, then I think we can play then into, I'll just go ahead and jump right into line 173 and uh, read here for a little bit and, and see the, they've laid the foundation of... Um, Again, uh, these two uh, modes of justification that the opponents have argued, and they've begun to lay that foundation of what our our position on justification is, and then he's really going to hammer it here. So I'll read a section, and then we'll discuss it. So at line 173, from this foundation, it can easily be decided why we attribute justification to faith and not to love. Love follows faith because love is fulfilling of the law. Again, that's uh, where we get kind of this subtitle heading for Article 5 if you use that breakup, love and fulfilling the law. And they cite Romans 13.10 here. Continue on. But Paul teaches that we are justified not from the law, but from the promise, which is received only through faith. We neither come to God without Christ as mediator, nor receive the forgiveness of sins for the sake of our love, but for the sake of Christ. Likewise, we are not able to love God while he is angry, and the law always accuses us, always presents an angry God to us. Therefore, we must first take the promise through faith that for Christ's sake, the Father is reconciled and forgives. Afterward, we begin to keep the law. Our eyes are to be cast far away from human reason, far away from Moses upon Christ. We are to believe that Christ is given to us in order that for his sake, we may be counted righteous in the flesh. We never satisfy the law. Wow. I mean, mm. what what just a beautiful proclamation of the scriptural teaching of our Christian faith. And that is that faith is founded in Christ and there alone. It's not in my ability to keep um, the law by doing the good works. Uh, it's not in my ability to uh, to understand that 
I need to be doing these good works. I just simply look to Christ. There's my hope. There I'm reconciled to God, our Heavenly Father. And out of that, of course, is going to spring forth lots of good works and lots of love towards my neighbor. You guys want to comment? Yeah, I, this section here reminds me of of Luther as he is rediscovering the gospel. I mean, we're coming up on the Reformation 500th anniversary here, and so this is one of those significant events in Luther's life where he's wrestling through Romans, and I think we have in biographies and other accounts, his own accounts, where he mentions he got to the point where he he saw God as only angry at him all the time because he rightly understood the law and what the law required of Luther himself, and the, the despair that he then felt, just like here in you know line 174, we're not able to love God while he is angry, and the law always accuses us, always presents an angry God to us. To me, that's very reminiscent of that period in Luther's life where all he could see was the angry God facing him in, in wrath until he understood the difference between the righteousness of God versus the righteousness, you know, of himself that he was supposed from to kind of from God that he was yeah. supposed to kind of generate and you know kind of work his work up there. Yeah, in fact, he writes and confesses, "I hated God." Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and and I've I've kind of learned this this in my own life too, as well as I'm sure we all have. I mean, that when we wrestle with this, I, w- I was just talking with a brother pastor earlier who was recounting a conversation he had of you know someone else who was kind of confessing, "Ah, oh, you know, I just kind of miserably fail as a pastor," and he's like guy you you put in 70 hours a week and he's like oh so then you're telling me i fail as a father and he's like <laughs> no you're a very loving father and he's like well then you're telling me i fail as a husband cuz something's got to fall yeah, here yeah. And, and see and that's exactly when when we when we try to motivate this from this we desire to do all these things uh led by god's word, word they're good holy things but ultimately we're always going to come a, up against this reality that it's not enough and if my hope is in my ability to do this, mm-hmm. um, then I am just a woeful guy. And I'm really going to hate God that he has put <laughs> such a burden on me that I have to do so much. Yeah. Um, and so I need to cling to one who is able to satisfy all righteousness, and that's Christ Jesus himself. And we have uh, these functions of the three ways that the law works. And we talk a lot about the curb and the mirror and the guide. Well, we have a case here where we see the mirror being honest, much more honest than we would like. Perhaps one of the good reasons that we're on the radio and not on TV is <laughs> I have a face and a body made for radio. No ra- no mirrors here. Yeah, no mirrors here because in my case, the mirror adds a whole lot of weight that I don't want to acknowledge is real. <laughs> and the law points out a whole lot of sin that I also don't want to acknowledge is real. But... Melanchthon holds nothing back as he talks about the starkness of the law. And this is where he's reframing what their opponents are saying because their opponents want to talk about the law as a curb that stops everybody from committing gross sins that everybody can recognize are wrong. And they want to talk about the the law as a guide so that everybody knows what a Christian life looks like. And so they're talking in curb and in guide mode, but Melanchthon says... No, we need to talk about the law always accusing and the law showing us our sin. Because if you try to only curb and guide, which is what the opponents are trying to do, talking about the law like it can save them or it has a role in saving them, instead of just showing them their sin so that you are saved by grace through faith, then 
you're you're up against the very problem itself. And Melanchthon says you can never go away from looking into the mirror of the law, that second function where we see our sin. And if you're trying to avoid looking and seeing your sin in the law, then you're deceiving yourself and the truth is not in you as john says mm-hmm. yeah and i like that uh looking because it, it it calls to mind for us exactly what we are to do in the gospel where are our eyes looking here and if we're looking into our works and our ability to love and those sorts of things well then we're just falling short every single time and we're just going to keep getting beat down and so he says in here in line um Uh, 175, our eyes to be cast far away from human reason, far away from Moses, that is the law, and upon Christ. It draws to my mind, uh, you know, the the Old Testament type of this as they're in the wilderness and the snakes are biting them and he has Moses lift up the bronze snake on the staff, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, where are you to look when you're getting bit by the snake, which are only there because of your own sinfulness and your own uh, failure to love God, right? Um, And if I'm looking down there at my ability to escape the snakes, which I clearly have failed at because I was bitten and I'm dying, right, by their poison. Um, So much beautiful imagery here. Uh, Where am I to look? I'm to cast my eyes up to there where God has told me to look and find my salvation. I will be saved from this bite. And of course, that is exactly what we do when we look to Christ upon the cross. That's why that is the center of our theology. This is the doctrine, the article of doctrine that the church stands or falls on. We must cast our gaze there at all times. It's one of the reasons I love the crucifix um, because when I get caught up in my own misery, usually created by my own sin, right? (laughs) Um, I'm prone to cast my look about, you know, well, if only I just find, you know, the right program in order to be able to do a more effective job or the more, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, whatever it is, you know, if I can just find that seat. And I never find hope or satisfaction there. It always falls short and leaves me disappointed. Um, But when I cast my gaze upon Christ in that crucifix, ultimately, every time, I am just filled with such hope. And it's like, ah, yes, there's my answer. And, And surely... Uh, I go out and I love and serve my neighbor and I desire to do a good and faithful job uh, striving on there all the more because of how Christ has demonstrated his love in saving me. This, this It's always a good reminder that we look to where the promise is. You know, it's, it's not that the bronze serpent up on that pole was something special in and of itself. It's, it's metal. It's a bronze serpent. Um, we, we, we would be tempted to worship it as the ser- as a serpent itself and idolize the thing. But no, what's, what's special about it is that God's promise, his word was attached to it, said, if you look there, you will be healed. And like you're talking about, Pastor Smith, you know, looking for the, the right program, the right fix. Well, no, we need to look where that, that promise is. So baptism, what is baptism? It's not just plain water. It's water and the word. What's that word? The promise. There's a promise attached to it. And so, as we've been talking about here, Melanchthon is constantly referring to this promise that we need to be looking towards. And that's what faith clings to. And I don't think we can ever be reminded of that too many times because we are constantly looking in our our own flesh. And actually, I'm going to pick up here at 176 because it starts talking about what our human nature does. It always looks looks somewhere else. So starting at line 176, therefore, we are counted righteous not because of the law, but because of Christ. His merits are granted us if we believe on him. We are not justified by the law because human nature cannot keep God's law 
and cannot love God. We are justified from the promise in which, for Christ's sake, reconciliation, righteousness, and eternal life have been promised. If anyone, therefore, has considered these foundations, he will easily understand that justification must necessarily be attributed to faith. It is not in vain that Christ has been promised and set forth, that he has been born and has suffered and been raised again. The promise of grace in Christ is not in vain. It was made immediately from the beginning of the world, apart from and beyond the law. The promise should always be received through faith, as 1 John 5, 10-12 says, Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And right there, Melanchthon is emphasizing our human nature can't do this. It's just not possible. We're always looking somewhere else. And if it was possible, we don't need Jesus. Why would there be any incarnation, any suffering, any betrayal, any death, any resurrection? And we end up in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, "If, if Christ wasn't raised then we should be pitied indeed because it comes down to us needing to continue to do, to work, to have that curbing function and that uh, guiding function. But what we really need is the mirror that shows us our sin, that shows us that we can't ever be curbed enough. We can't ever be guided enough by ourselves. The mirror shows us our sin and so we repent. And we look to Christ, the one who indeed was born, who suffered, who died, who rose, who forgives. Mm. And that is the very center of our faith. And we look to Christ just for that. But I did find it really interesting that Melanchthon says here that uh, the promise of grace in Christ isn't made, isn't in vain, sorry. It was made immediately from the beginning of the world apart from and beyond the law. The presence of Christ is bigger than the law, and the law comes to direct us to Christ, but Christ has always been. The promise of God's presence and of God's hope and comfort in Christ has been even before the world was made. Mm. And it's not that Jesus is the Father's plan B to save sinners. The Son who has been eternally with the Father, has always been the plan, and his revelation to people, to God's creation, has always been part of the Father's intention. And so we look to Christ in a, in a Garden of Eden kind of perspective before the fall, in a post-fall, post-Garden of Eden existence like we have now, in a post-resurrection experience that we will have when Christ comes again, our faith, even in the resurrection, will still be in Christ. Thanks be to God. Yeah. I, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to comment really quick about um, the, the plan A, plan B kind of mentality. I think most of us don't necessarily think about it in, in such crass terms, but I think it kind of sneaks in there a little bit because uh, there is this idea that, you know, here's the law. And God wouldn't give you a law or or tell you to do something if he didn't think you could do it. You know, that is a very common 
thing that you that that we'll hear. And so that it lends itself to this idea that the law is something that we can do or should be able to do, or God, when he first gave it to us, intended us to be able to do it, but then we fell and we screwed it up. So now we don't talk about it in terms of a plan B necessarily, but there is this idea that God kind of brought Jesus into the picture and, you know, he died on the cross for our sins. So now we can get back to doing the law. If Adam and Eve weren't just such big screw-ups, then we wouldn't need to be in this situation. Yeah, Jesus, you know, he wouldn't have even been a part of the picture at all. And no, this is clearly saying, no, Jesus, before the foundations of creation were laid, was the plan. He was always the plan. The law has always been God's will for your life, but the law was never given as a way of of salvation in any way, shape, or form at all. And I think it's very easy for us to forget that side of things. And we don't necessarily talk about it in those terms, but we come pretty close uh, sometimes to actually (coughs) thinking about it that way and even acting in that way. Wow, you have really just <laughs> laid a whole whole lot out there, both of you, and this is great stuff, and, and I just want to jump in here, but unfortunately, we need to go to break, and so this is a good place where we'll take a, we'll a break right here. Back. We'll be right back. We'll continue this. You're listening to Concord Matters. Concordia University, Wisconsin, and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs, and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. Hi, this is Pastor Mark Azil, the LCMS Director of Campus Ministry and the Chancellor of LCMSU, inviting you to join us right here on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. in the Student Union. If you can't make it, Student Union is always available as a podcast at kfuo.org. Learn more about LCMSU at lcmsu.org. And remember, college is tough. You need Jesus. We'll help. Wednesday afternoon at 2 on KFUO. What happened to the Reformation after the death of Martin Luther? What were the theological controversies and how were they resolved? Tuesday on Issues Etc., we'll talk with Pastor Paul McCain of Concordia Publishing House, our ongoing series on the Reformation past, present, and future. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. Support Lutheran Education and join us at Brew in the Lou, the Tasting Festival, Saturday, October 14th, from 1 to 5 p.m. at Francis Park. It features a sampling of St. Louis Best in Beer, Spirits, Coffee, and Good Eats. Festivities include live music, dancing, vendor sampling, and selling. Information is online at lesastl.org, lesastl.org. On the phone at 314-200-0797. Brew in the Lou, October 14th. Armenia is a small country with a rich Christian history going back to the 4th century, the first country to adopt Christianity as its state religion. 
The Armenian Apostolic Church takes its name from the apostles Bartholomew and Thaddeus, traditionally considered their founders. It was Mesrop, a 5th century Christian monk, who developed the Armenian alphabet, and the earliest examples of Armenia's literary culture are translations of the Bible. Mesrop and others translated the book of Proverbs first and completed the entire Bible around A.D. 410. Today, by constitutional amendment, the Armenian Apostolic Church is the national church of the Republic of Armenia for the development and preservation of the national identity of the people of Armenia. Engage with the Bible in its influence over the centuries. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. And welcome back. You're listening to Concord Matters. And this is a show where we seek agreement in Christian confession. And we've just been talking about how we agree on uh, faith clinging to Christ, who is the promise of God for our salvation. Uh, so much going on here. Um, I want to pick up one point here. And we were just uh, reading. I, I guess I should say who I am again. We came back from break. I was going to say, who are you? Yeah, I'm Pastor <laughs> Sean Smith, pastor of St. Paul Wine Hill in Emmanuel West Point in Southern Illinois. I'm here with Pastor Peter Ill, pastor of Trinity in Milstadt, Illinois, and uh, Mr. Peter Slayton, social media manager of the LCMS Communications. Back to the good stuff. <laughs> Back to the goods of G uh, Jesus Christ, our salvation, our merits. Um, we, we just read um, paragraph 176, and you guys were talking really fantastically about our promise in Christ. And, and I wanted to point out here, Therefore, we are counted righteous, not because of the law, but because of Christ. His merits are granted us if we believe on him. I mean, this is just profound what he's saying here. And perhaps we should identify our terms here. Righteous, I mean, it's a term we use quite commonly in the church, but sometimes we, we need a reminder of what that means. Mm -hmm. It means to be right. Uh, it means to be the way things are supposed to be. And, and, um, and not just yeah. right in terms of against wrong. Uh, because a lot of times That's when we point. say that righteousness is just being right, uh, you know, uh, a lot of times people will look at me and say, you know, a broken clock is right twice a day. That kind of a thing. <laughs> but, it's but it's not, not righteous at all. because it's the not clock's righteous. not working. If, it's not if the clock job. is running the way it's supposed to, if the clock is telling the accurate time and keeping the right pace of seconds and minutes and hours, then the clock is righteous. It's the way it's supposed to be. So it's bigger than just right and wrong, but it's running according to plan. And as sinful people, we don't run according to plan. We run according to sin. And so we are unrighteous, but we are restored to righteousness by God's law and God's gospel that we receive in Christ. I'm sorry to have interrupted you, Pastor. There's a meme in there somewhere, running according to sin. If one of our listeners could turn that into a meme, I think that's got some great potential there. It does. Yeah, me being the internet social media guy, I had to bring that up. Yeah, because then maybe you'll use it and uh, it'll make your job a little easier right now. <laughs> center and trying to get out of doing work make it yourself social media manager no uh that that would be a, a law-based thing that i'm i'm trying to get you to live up to my expectations of what your job should be right uh and i'm only slightly less uh demanding than god our heavenly father no he but uh Back on topic here. Uh, yeah, great, great point there. Exactly. The way things are supposed to be according to plan, the way God designed us to be. And and also here, 
you know, he lays out later in that paragraph that for Christ's sake, we have reconciliation, righteousness, and eternal life that have been promised. You know, at the time of the Reformation, that was the great struggle. You know, they were trying to figure out, you know, how do I have peace with God? Mm-hmm. You know, and and it flowed forth from exactly what we still struggle with today, that they didn't have peace in this life. And so when you have a God that if you're only or rather, if you only have your hope for the hereafter, you know, and that only comes when you have peace with God, they were really striving for these things. That's why indulgences were so successful and so much of Rome's teaching, because it allowed them to be able to tap into, oh, this is where I have peace. Yeah, it right? gives you a concrete thing that you can do that you can look at and say, there it is. I did it. Now I can know. Right. And and I was thinking, you know, again, you know, the past couple of weeks, you know, we've seen again what's happening here in St. Louis, the protests, uh, the lack of peace that we have with the world in terms of just natural disasters that have happened, the, all the hurricanes, earthquake, uh, things like that. And, and it makes me wonder, you know, do people still wrestle with these things today? You know, we clearly don't have peace in this life. Where are they turning to find their peace are they desiring these this kind of peace with God anymore? And I, and I don't know that I have any concrete answers necessarily. Uh, you guys want to jump in and share any thoughts on that? It's it's kind of hard to comment specifically because I'd I'd have to know what somebody is thinking and what they're saying. But I but I think according to our human nature as created beings who were created by God, we all desire peace with God in one form or another, even if we don't actually know that's what we are desiring. As, as a Christian, because that's what Scripture teaches, that's what I believe, even though I might walk up to somebody on the street and say, hey, do you desire peace with God? And they'll be like, what? No, I don't think about that at all. <laughs> I think that culturally, we've gotten to a point where we don't talk about God very often, and when we do, it's the God of our own creation and the God of our own making. And we've we've done the theodicy thing. We've put God in a box and we've answered all the questions and we think we have him figured out. And when we think we have God figured out, then I can actually retreat into myself and I don't need peace with God. I need peace within me. And once I've established my own peace, then I'm good to go because I don't need to worry about objective peace in the world being whatever is happening internationally or whatever is happening within the United States or whatever is happening even within my own house, trying to manage the the chaos that I bring there. As long as I have peace inside myself, then everything else does figure itself out and I don't need to worry about it. And that's the lie that I'm tempted to believe. It's probably the lie that a lot of us as 21st century uh, people are tempted to believe. You put put that in the context of the the self-esteem movement that was huge in the past, but even now, this idea of needing to love yourself and be true to yourself and follow your heart and all those sorts of uh, cliches that we see nowadays, I wonder if that's simply another way of expressing what you just said, Pastor Ill, about, you know, being at peace with yourself. I am my own God. I'm I'm the primary authority on my life and what things should be. Uh, the only problem is when me being at peace with myself comes into conflict with you trying to be at peace with yourself, and I just hope I'm more powerful than you so that I can continue to be at peace with myself and at your expense if necessary. And we end up being slaves to ourself then, and that's where... Uh, 
Melanchthon continues to write, quoting Jesus, which is a really good thing to do. And he says here in paragraph, at the end of paragraph 176, Christ says, so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's from John 8, 36. Paul also says in Romans 5, 2, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. By faith in Christ, therefore, the promise of the forgiveness of sins and of righteousness is received. Neither are we justified before God by reason or by the law. And so here we are free. We have obtained access by faith into grace. And that's how we stand. It's not the law. It's not our reason. It's not our common sense. It's not our works. It's not our autonomy or the peace that we can find within ourselves. It is all from Christ who is outside of us and for us. Yeah, it's interesting. The the previous points you made tying in here with uh, what you just read as well. It, it's, it's getting my mind generating kind of a little bit about my own question that I asked. And I think you have a, a great point on this that what we do is we create idols and and absolutely that's always that's always our Isn't simple there a inclination quote from luther about humans being idol factories or somebody yeah absolutely and uh and so you know we do still see this and 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 this desire for peace with god while it's not really any different than it was at the time of the reformation there they kind of took for granted um, that their idols were the God of heaven, right? Uh, that, that you know, it was a broadly Christian culture. You had Holy Roman Emperor and things of that nature. And so they would kind of play that into it. But we have no less the same struggles today um, in, in the sense that when we create the government as our idol or when we create ourselves as our own idol, uh, what we're trying to do is be set free from our own realization that we're not, we don't have peace with these because they're idols. They can't grant us peace. And, uh, you know, it, it plays into my mind, you know, uh, wonderful, faithful layman recently uh, said to me, he said, you know, I, I take a look out at our country and it's just getting bad out there, pastor. And uh, there's just no peace and, and we need it. And, you know, if we're striving for that, you know, peace in our country, anything apart from Christ and him crucified, we're really not going to have that peace. And, uh, and so it, I think we still desire that, that peace with God, but the, this ties in here with this, the sun setting us free. Then I, I think there's this theology out there. It's called liberation theology that has really kind of wrecked American Christianity today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that our goal is to be set free, to live how we really feel like we should be, you know, in terms of our worth. And uh, when we read these words, if the sun sets you free, we don't read there from sin, death, and the devil. We see, oh, I've been set free to live to what makes me happy. Whatever kind of oppression I am under, yeah, I'm set free from that. Yeah, whatever kind of power, and, and it becomes a way to throw off any kind of authority, even if it's authority granted by God. Uh, Romans mm-hmm. 13, the government, for instance, right? You know, oh, I can throw that out because I, liberation theology, I've, I've been set free from this. I don't have to uh, submit to that. Uh, but that's not what he's saying, all right? Um, it's, it's granting us, where do we find our real peace with God? That's in Christ, right? God, our Heavenly Father, through Christ. And we are granted that freedom there, 
that we have real life. And then I see the law that says submit to the governing authorities. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And that that will actually bring me peace there, too, to live according to his word, which says this is what's really good for you. I don't know. And thinking a little bit more about your thoughts on idols, when Scripture speaks about the idols of the uh, the nations that lived around the people of Israel, the Moabites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Philistines, you know, they have Dagon and they have Molech and they have Baal and Ashtoreth and, and so on. And they have objective idols. They have this place, this statue, this thing that represents for them a god outside of them. As Christians, we have a God outside of us too, but our culture is more and more becoming less objective and more subjective. And so reality, salvation, is something within me instead of something outside of me. And the more that our culture drives us into ourselves, the greater the temptation to stop looking outside of us for our rescue, for our redemption, for our Christ. And when you continue to hear the drumbeat, you have to look inside yourself. You have to look to yourself. You can provide for you. At least at least God's Old Testament people were surrounded by people saying, well, yeah, we're all agreed that God is outside of you. You don't have a God in you. You have a God out of you. <laughs> and so they were looking outside of them to the wrong place. We are also looking to the wrong place, looking to our subjective idols just as much as... Uh, in the culture around us, we look just as much to those subjective idols as the Philistines and the Hittites and the Canaanites did to their subjective or to their objective uh, uh, idols. And I think speaking as a, as a parent of five children, one of the most common places where we see this is in children's movies and children's books and things that are out there. So as, as any parents who are listening, um, it it is our responsibility as parents to, you know, it's it's not it, it is a good thing to shelter your child from these things. So as a parent, if you choose, you know what, I'm just going to limit access to all this. That's wonderful. But whatever access you give your children to, um, basically any any books, any movies, it's our responsibility to be aware that pretty much everything that comes out at some point somewhere is pointing you inside yourself. Uh, whether it's for your self-worth, whether it's for your peace, whether it's for uh, self-esteem or loving yourself or any number of one of these things, everything that is being put out there pretty much points you to you. It, it is an overwhelming worldview that comes at us from all sides. But Scripture says really clearly that that's not correct. Yeah. And that's where Melanchthon picks up in paragraph 177. And he writes, These things are so plain and so clear, we wonder how the insanity of the adversaries is so great that it calls them into doubt. The proof is clear. Since we are justified before God, not from the law, but from the promise, it is necessary to attribute justification to faith. What can be opposed to this proof unless someone wishes to abolish the entire gospel and the entire Christ? Christ's glory becomes more brilliant when we teach that we make the most of him as our mediator and atoning sacrifice. Godly consciences see that the most abundant consolation is offered to them in this doctrine. They see that they ought to believe and most firmly assert that they have a reconciled father for Christ's sake, and not for the sake of our righteousness. Yet they also see that Christ aids us, so that we are able to keep the law as well. 
the adversaries deprive the church of such great blessings as these when they condemn and work to wipe out the doctrine about the righteousness of faith. Therefore, let all good minds beware of consenting to the godless counsels of the adversaries. In the adversaries' teaching about justification, no mention is made of Christ and how we ought to be, how we ought to set him against God's anger, as though we were able to overcome his anger by love, or to love an angry God. In regard to these things, consciences are left in uncertainty. And here it talks very much about thinking about Luther and his writings of, wow, it was that I lived in fear of God and in fear of his wrath and in fear of his anger for me, even as Luther could say, I hated God. And we're able to say, when you talk about justification, being made righteous and running in good order again, without Christ, when you remove Christ from justification, you don't have justification at all. You don't have mm. hope and you don't have promise. And that's a big concern. We've, we've come full circle you know, 500 years later on this whole uncertainty <clears throat> and doubt thing. Because you can see uh, the Council of Trent, I don't know, what, 20 years after this, however many years later. About 1550, yeah. Th yeah. 20 years when, ago. Yeah. Um, when, when that happened, they essentially an anathematized peace with God and certainty. And, and they anathematized? Anathematized. That's a great word, isn't it? It Let's is. Let's say that five times fast. They, 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 they said this is to be a curse. This is wrong. This is a damnable heresy, um, using that in the technical sense. Um, so you, you cannot, they, they said you cannot have assurance and peace with God. You cannot have certainty. And that's, we're seeing the seeds of that right here in the doctrine of the adversaries, that they, they want you to have enough certainty that you're going to do the good works, but not enough that you'll, well, their worry is you'll stop doing the good works. I think that's what we end up seeing as this argument progresses is the concern for the adversaries is very much one of if, if people have certainty in, in the promise alone, in faith alone, if that gives them certainty, well, they're never going to want to do good works. We're kind of on the other side of that today where Doubt and uncertainty within Christian circles is once again being raised up as a virtue. and But it's not because they're trying to get you to do good works. It's now tied to this God within you, you know, identity kind of issue. And it's more a, well, you don't want to be so arrogant to think that you actually have the answers and might know something. You need to be just uncertain enough I guess it is tied to works. Just uncertain enough that you're sure to love your neighbor who believes differently than you do. And we, we've come back around to where the uncertainty and the doubt is a virtue again, just like it was back here. And in faith terms, we often will refer to that desire for the presence of God as mysticism, where you're looking to tap into God's presence. Um, and for us today, we're talking about it as God's presence within you. In the Reformation, uh, the Reformation mystics were talking more about the presence of God outside of you, but there, there is always in sinful people this goal to find God and to, to tap into his power so that he can do what he does with you and in you, and 
in a way that you can control it. And so you want to step into God's presence and you want to dictate to him how he's going to live in your life. For the adversaries here, their mysticism is driven by an allegiance to these actions, these works. And they, they live in fear that if we tell people that they don't have to do works in order to be saved, they'll just stop doing works and they'll get lazy. But we also know that Luther continually writes to people that they would not be lazy. Yeah. Melanchthon <laughs> writes to people that they would not be lazy. Paul, James, Jesus himself speak again and again that there is no room for laziness. Instead, we are to be like the wise virgins who keep their lamps burning. We are to work while it is day, lest when night comes, we be overtaken. We're to stay awake even uh, as the watchman waits for his master to return overnight. Again and again, we are called to works, not because they are necessary for salvation, but these works, as told us by Jesus and the apostles, are necessary, but they don't save us. When you are justified by faith alone and find your confidence in Christ by faith alone, you will want to live out God's will in your life, which means loving your neighbor. It's just the natural way that things happen. It's wonderful. And that's where we see the appropriate part of the guiding function of the law. Now that you've seen your sin and look to Christ in faith, what does a righteous life look like? The law shows you, not just in your failings, but in your uh, gospel-strengthened motivation, now what it looks like. And so you have a picture of the godly life in the law. And that's where we can say the law is a good thing. The law is a good thing when it shows us our sin, but the law is also a good thing when it shows us what a righteous life looks like. And as we live according to that righteousness that God has given us, both to save us from our sins and to strengthen us in the actions that he has called us to do. Yeah, I think the issue is what's our starting place? And if we're trying to get at, um, you know, how do we have assurance of salvation? It, it is irrefutable that what was being taught at that time was, you know, I, I like what you, you pointed out there about there's just, we have to have this uncertainty so that we see the good works. Um, but, <laughs> but it's also their starting place, you know, yeah. it's, it, you know, you, you really need to do these things. Otherwise you can't have certainty that you, that you have any hope on that last Look, day. Look, we got a cathedral to build in Rome. Come on, people step <laughs> it up. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, and, and we still hear these sorts of things still going on in the church today. I have had many certain sermon shared with me of, oh, pastor, isn't that a great sermon? I'm like, that's really a whole lot of law in there. Uh, you know, not much gospel. And it's talking a whole lot about whether it be in the, the internal motivations of myself or, you know, external, whatever have you. It, it's trying to motivate me to do good works. And I'm not saying don't preach the law. We obviously preach the law. We got to hold that intention, though, with the gospel and clearly proclaim that gospel. And that gospel really needs to be our starting place as this is how you are saved. Christ. Right. And, and we really um, there's far too many sermons out there that I've heard um, that uh, don't proclaim Christ enough. They may pay lip service to Christ of, you know, Christ gives you the ability to keep these words. Well, you still haven't pro pro provided the gospel that says Christ did this. Christ yeah. has saved you. Christ fulfilled all righteousness. Christ is the one that has done all of this work that is demanded here uh, for salvation. And we have all failed at it. 
And then that merit is delivered to me in that cross as well. And I will, of course, hear all of that law proclaimed in there too. And I will say, you know, yeah, Christ has fulfilled all that righteousness for me. And that peace is my peace uh, in Christ. And I'm going to desire to do that. I'm going to desire to live according to that because I recognize that that really is good life for me. Uh, but if, if that's not my starting place, then I'm just kind of beating myself up and it's never going to be good enough. And one of the examples of the way that this can happen is when people will often read the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and I've had non-Christian folks talk to me about Jesus is a great teacher and a great uh, moralist and a great philosopher. And so we should talk about it this way. And then we hear uh, the Beatitudes. Uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those, uh, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, and so on. And a lot of times I hear sermons on this or I hear devotional thoughts on this that say, that's right. Those who are meek, those who are the peacemakers, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're blessed. So go be Go thou that. and do likewise. Go thou and do likewise <laughs> so that you can be blessed too. Instead of hearing the comfort of Christ who says, blessed are you when... And he comes starting with you in your broken downness, in your sin, and he declares you to be blessed, and you have that blessing. And so it's not a go do likewise, go find that meekness, but rather, you are this, and I give you my blessing. You grieve, you weep, you have difficult times, and I bless you. And even in the midst of your suffering, rejoice and be glad you have the law all around you. So get the gospel too. Rejoice and be glad. And and that's the Sermon on the Mount. We could go through the whole Sermon on the Mount that way, but let's not, because we do have other radio programs to be able to get on the air today, too. It's, it's, it's the same tension that we're experiencing with the adversaries here and Pastor Smith that you were talking about with these sermons that are heavy on the law. It, it's not that what the adversaries want people to do are not good things to do and aren't actually the law. Yes, you should love your neighbor, you should serve your neighbor. And so many of the sermons that we hear that are so heavy on the law, it's not that what the pastor is preaching isn't actually law. It's that they're preaching it as if that's all there is, as if that is the thing, as if that is the point, and go and do likewise, and they're leaving you without the understanding that, like you guys have said, Christ has done this for us, Christ has freed you, you can, you now get to, or you can, or I don't even, even as I'm trying to express it, I'm like, wait, those aren't the right words either. But it's like, there, there's a joy that comes with it as, as you live God's will for your life in, in the gospel, in that confidence that you're already saved, you're already justified, and now you get to go out and God's will for your life is a wonderful, joyful thing. Amen. You are blessed in Christ. He is your righteousness. He is your life. He is your salvation. This will remain our confession until the end of time. We agree with God in this, and we agree with each other. Thanks, brothers, for joining us today, and sisters, too, uh, out there in Christ as uh, uh, we wrap up another show here, Proclaiming Christ and Him Crucified. I'm Pastor Sean Smith here with Pastor Peter Hill and Mr. Peter Slayton. You keep confessing, church. You've been listening to Concord Matters, produced by Worldwide KFUO. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314-996-1518. Or you can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Concord Matters on Worldwide KFUO. KFUO.